Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We will hear argument first this morning in case 22277, Moody versus NetChoice. That was Supreme Court Justice John Roberts opening oral argument last Monday in the first of two cases concerned with state laws in Florida and Texas that place restrictions on how social media platforms can moderate the content of users, including, in the case of the Florida law, a platform's ability to deplatform users and to establish obligations for social media platforms to disclose content moderation policies. Broadly, the states argue the platforms are restricting people's speech. For instance, here's the opening argument by Henry Whitaker, Solicitor General for the state of Florida. Internet platforms today control the way millions of Americans communicate with each other and with the world. The platforms achieved that success by marketing themselves as neutral forums for free speech. Now that they host the communications of billions of users, they sing a very different tune. They now say that they are in fact editors of their user speech, rather like a newspaper. They contend that they possess a broad First Amendment right to censor anything they host on their sites, even when doing so contradicts their own representations to consumers. But the design of the First Amendment is to prevent the suppression of speech, not to enable it. That is why the telephone company and the delivery service have no First Amendment right to use their services as a choke point to silence those they disfavor. Broadly facilitating communication in that way is conduct, not speech. And if Verizon asserted a First Amendment right to cancel disfavored subscribers at a whim, that claim would fail no less than the claimed right to censorship failed in Pruneyard versus Robbins and Rumsfeld versus Fair. Social networking companies, too, are in the business of transmitting their users' speech. Their users are the ones who create and select the content that appears on their sites. The, plat- the, the platforms, indeed, disavow responsibility for that conduct in their terms of service. The platforms do sort and facilitate the presentation of user speech. But this court just last term in Twitter versus Tamina and the platforms themselves in Gonzalez versus Google described those tools as little more than passive mechanisms for organizing vast amounts of third-party content. The platforms do not have a First Amendment right to apply their censorship policies in an inconsistent manner and to censor and deplatform certain users. But the tech firms, led by the trade association NetChoice, argue that, in fact, these laws violate the First Amendment rights of the platforms themselves. Here's NetChoice counsel Paul Clement. Florida's effort to level the playing field and to fight the perceived bias of big tech violates the First Amendment several times over. It interferes with editorial discretion. It compels speech. It discriminates on the basis of content, speaker, and and viewpoint. And it does all this in the name of promoting free speech, but loses sight of the first principle of the First Amendment, which is it only applies to state action. Florida defends its law, as you've heard this morning, principally by insisting that there's no expressive activity being regulated. That blinks reality. This statute defines the targeted websites in part by how big their audience is. It regulates the content and display of particular websites, and it tries to prevent my clients 
from censoring speakers and content. If you are telling the websites that you are sens- that they can't censor speakers, you can't turn around and say you're not regulating expressive activity. It's all over this law. And that brings it squarely within the teaching of Tornillo, PG&E, and Hurley. All three of those cases teach that you cannot have the forced dissemination of third-party speech, and they reject considerations of market power, misattribution, or space constraints. And Reno and 303 Creative make clear those principles are fully applicable on the Internet. Indeed, given the vast amount of material on the Internet in general and on these websites in particular, exercising editorial discretion is absolutely necessary to make the websites useful for users and advertisers. And the closer you look at Florida's law, the more problematic the First Amendment problems become. It singles out particular websites in plain violation of Minneapolis Star. It's provisions that give preferences to political candidates and to to journalistic enterprises are content-based in the extreme. I welcome the court's questions. At Tech Policy Press, we did our best to cover the issues at stake in these cases by reviewing the dozens of amicus briefs submitted ahead of oral argument and talking to experts in the field. For this week's episode, I invited my colleagues on to get their reactions to the argument. I'm Gabby Miller, staff writer at Tech Policy Press. Ben Lennett, contributing editor for Tech Policy Press. All right. So the two of you uh, have both, I guess, pre-gamed this oral argument as well as considered the aftermath. So we've done both pre-game and post-game at Tech Policy Press. We're going to have a little bit of a wrap discussion today. There were a set of questions that we put forward that we were watching for going into the oral argument based on our review of the amicus briefs and all of the dialogue and the expert community on these things in advance. One of the key ones and perhaps most basic ones, Ben, that you put forward was, will the justices be more comfortable with social media in their analysis of these cases? What do you think? How did they do? I think they were they did seem more uh, more comfortable. I mean, one headline I read about the case said the court seemed lost, but I think if you compare this to what happened in Gonzalez and Tamina, a lot of the questions in that case, those cases were about how things worked. I think you saw a lot more specificity here about how to actually apply the law in this context, and you saw that particularly early on when in the conversation around net choices, facial challenge to the laws themselves. I think some of the relevant cases that are that are involved in terms of the precedents, that there was just a lot more comfort here, but that doesn't necessarily make their decision any easier. So to some extent, maybe the Gonzalez, the Tomna cases last year forced the justices to get into the weeds, look at some of the specifics of how these platforms function, ask some questions even about how they may function in future. It seems like they've they've learned a little bit. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, Gonzalez and Tamina, you know, they had to grapple with, you know, how how content moderation worked, how the recommendation algorithms worked. So there's a a little bit of a a learning curve for them in those cases, but obviously that's much more familiar now, and it's really much more about how to apply the law. And I think the difference in this case between the Gonzalez and Tamina's cases, it's just they had an easier off ramp given the nature of those cases versus this case where they are going to have to make some significant decision here. But one of the kind of perennial questions uh, kept coming back, which is this question around our platforms like publishers, or are they something completely different? Gabby, this is something that you addressed in the piece that you and Hajra Galani produced after the oral argument. 
What do we make of this kind of perennial question? So they were referred to in a lot of different ways. The platforms were referred to as public forums. They were referred to as modern public squares. Justice Jackson. But what do you do with the fact that now, today, the Internet is the public square? And I appreciate that these uh, companies are private companies. But if the speech now is occurring in this environment, why wouldn't the same concerns about censorship apply? Justice Roberts. And I wonder, since we're talking about the First Amendment, whether our first concern should be uh, uh, with the state regulating uh, what, you know, we have called the modern uh, public square. They were referred to as newspapers. There was one point in which Justice Samuel Alito asked NetChoice Counsel, saying, let's say YouTube were a newspaper, how much would it weigh? That's kind of the same thing here, which I mean, is... If you're, if, if let's say YouTube were a newspaper, how much would it weigh? Ben, another question that you were looking at in your pregame piece was, what will Justice Thomas's position be? What did we learn about his views? Yeah, so it was interesting. I mean, very much a difference, again, between this case and Gonzalez and Tamina. The expectation in those earlier cases, given Justice Thomas's past writings, was that he would be particularly critical of Section 230. That didn't turn out to be true. In fact, both during the oral argument and in his opinion, which he wrote for the Tamina case, defended Section 230. This time around, you saw a lot more critique and pushback by Justice Thomas on Section 230 and a real effort by Justice Thomas and I think a few other justices to really poke holes in this idea that content moderation really reflects sort of the editorial discretion of the platforms and that they are really framing them much more so as the Fifth Circuit did, that they are really sort of almost like common carriers, these sort of neutral conduits that carry speech for others. There was one exchange where Justice Thomas spoke about being around since the beginning of the internet, sort of making an argument that under 230, that the platforms really are merely a conduit. I've been fortunate or unfortunate to have been here for most of the development of the internet. Uh, <laughs> And uh, the argument under Section 230 has been that you're merely a conduit, which it exact, that was the case that back in the 90s and perhaps the early 2000s. Now you're saying that you are engaged in editorial discretion and expressive conduct. Doesn't that seem to undermine your Section 230 arguments? With respect, Justice Thomas, I mean, obviously you were here for all of it. I wasn't here for all of it. But my understanding is that my clients have consistently taken the position that they are not mere conduits. And Congress, in passing Section 230, looked at some common law cases that basically said, well, if you're just a pure conduit, that means that you're free from liability. But if you start becoming a publisher by keeping some bad conduct out, content out, then you no longer have that common law liability protection. And as I understand 230, the whole point of it was to encourage websites and other regulated parties to essentially uh, exercise editorial discretion, to keep some of that bad stuff out of there. So this kind of ties back to that question, are platforms like publishers? I think you, you saw a bit of frustration with the justices in terms of just how circular this debate is. Partly because there is a good sense of how and un, of the law in terms of how we treat publishers. There's a reasonable good sense of how we treat common carriers. But with Section 230, 
Congress essentially did create this other category. And in this other category, platforms, social media companies, they engage with speech of others. And as part of that, they get all of these rights and privileges as a publisher would under the First Amendment. But then there's really a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty around whether they have any legal accountability, even close to what a publisher would have if they were a newspaper or some other type of media entity. I think many folks would argue that that's a, been a good thing for free speech, and that's certainly a defensible position. But I think if you are someone who's looking at what you can do to regulate the platforms, it makes those kind of discussions incredibly difficult. The other justice that really brought this up and put NetChoice's feet to the fire, I'd say, was Justice Neil Gorsuch. He was really interested in that. And he said, I just simply cannot see how we can have this conversation without actually bringing Section 230 in. What about Section 230, which preempts some of this law? How much of it? And how are we to account for that complication in a facial challenge? Oh, well, why don't you answer the question, then we'll Brief move on. Yeah. Well, 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 I think that the court should answer the question presented, I guess. Um, but how can we do that without looking at 230? Well, because I, I, don't, I don't think that there's any uh, – some of this was briefed at the, at the cert stage, Your Honor. Um, I don't think – And so he brought that up again and again. On that – okay, okay. So if yeah. they're not if – if the expression of the user is theirs because they curate it, where does that leave Section 230? Because the protection there, as I understood it, and Justice Thomas was making this point, was that Section 230 says we're not going to treat you as publishers so long as you are not – It's not your communication in whole or in part, is what the definition says. And if it's now their communication in part, do they lose their 230 protections? One of the other questions, Ben, that you raised in your analysis in advance of the argument was this question about will the justices be receptive to the Fifth Circuit's interpretation of the First Amendment? What was the Fifth Circuit's interpretation of the First Amendment? And were the justices receptive to it? I think what's interesting about the Fifth Circuit's decision is that they basically ignored all of the other circuits' courts' framing of content moderation as editorial discretion, which would be protected by the First Amendment. And they had various reasons for doing that, but essentially that was the crux of their argument, that content moderation was not the same as editorial discretion and therefore was not protected by the First Amendment. Now, some justices seemed receptive to that, Justice Thomas, Justice Gorsuch, maybe Justice Alito, But you also saw a lot of other folks on the court, a lot of other justices be more skeptical of that. Justice Barrett, for example, asking at one point, why is this the same, you know, content moderation, not the same as what uh, newspapers exercise? Well, we'll put aside common carry for one second and just pretend, just common carry to the side. Just tell me why this doesn't look like the same kind of editorial control we see newspapers exercise. Justice Jackson pushing back on a framing of Facebook as a common carrier and not really sort of seeing that as reflective of the court's past precedents. I hear you suggesting that we can just say, you know, Facebook is a common carrier and therefore everything it does qualifies as conduct and not speech. And I don't think that's really the way we've done this in our past precedents. So can you speak to that? Sure. Certainly that's not what we're saying, Your Honor. I I completely agree with you that it's very important to isolate what conduct each particular provision of the law is Not the law, the entity. What is the entity well, doing? So I think there's a, a bit of division in terms of where the Fifth Circuit landed versus 
compared to where the courts have landed in terms of their precedents. Uh, and that's partly because, again, the Fifth Circuit's decision was sort of out of left field, so to speak, in terms of really not engaging with the court's past precedents on this topic and instead really viewing content moderation as not necessarily an expressive conduct. And also, I think largely with the states framing that these companies are common carriers. So one of the questions uh, is around the boundaries of the First Amendment for social media. That's one of the things that you brought up early on in your analysis, Ben. You know, do we have any insight after this argument in terms of where the court might think that boundary is? I mean, there's a lot of concern in the amicus briefs about this, uh, especially about any potential ruling possibly expanding the boundary. Yeah, and I think those concerns were valid. I mean, net choice in particular really generally in this case is kind of asking for the whole enchilada, you know, the nature of the challenge being a facial challenge, which is a really an effort to declare that that both laws are wholly unconstitutional is really an expansive effort to apply the first amendment to all of the activities covered in these laws. But you also saw other efforts by NetChoice, for example, to claim that if a law targets companies on the basis of their size, that that would be a violation of the First Amendment, which draw a lot of concerns from from outside observers. I think a lot of the justices were very concerned about the broadness of both laws because the applications of which social media platforms would be covered came up again and again. So, you know, this idea of whether Gmail and WhatsApp could be swept up in this law or either law um, was an issue, you know, because they were worried that, okay, if users send emails that express point of view that the companies don't, you know, agree with, the examples that they used were explicitly Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow, does that mean that they could be kicked off of Gmail? Does the Florida law cover Gmail? <clears throat> the, the Florida law, I, I, I think by its terms, could cover Gmail. All right. So uh, does Gmail have a First Amendment right to delete, let's say, Tucker Carlson's or Rachel Maddow's Gmail accounts if they don't agree with her uh, or his or her viewpoints? Uh, they, they might be able to do that, Your Honor. I mean, that's obviously not uh, something that has been the square focus of this litigation. They were kind of saying, you know, whether whether Gmail or WhatsApp is covered, those questions are eventually going to have to be reconciled because Facebook has DM features in the same way that email works. Other applications that were brought up were kind of all over the place. Etsy was brought up because people can leave reviews. Justice Barrett. So Florida's law, so far as I can understand it, is very broad. And we're talking about the classic social media platforms, but it, it looks to me like it could cover Uber. It looks to me like it could cover just Google search engines, Amazon Web Service, and all of those things would look very different. And, you know, Justice Sotomayor brought up Etsy. It seems to me that there are, now Etsy has a feed recommended for you, right? But it also just has shops for handmade goods that you can get. It looks a lot more like a brick and mortar marketplace or flea market, you know, than, you know, a place for hosting speech. Okay. A lot of the justices were concerned that especially when, when there are things, participatory events, like the job fair or like Uber in terms of who gets to decide who is picked up. Does the, does the Florida law apply to Uber? Its definition would seem to apply to Uber, yes. So you've told us that it's okay for your clients to discriminate on the basis of viewpoint in the provision of email services or in allowing direct messages 
messages from one Facebook user to another on, on a private uh, facility? Uh, how about Uber uh, discriminating on the basis of viewpoint with respect to people that its drivers will pick up? So I, I think the way is that, that okay. I don't think that's okay. I don't think Uber is interested in doing that. I think the way the statute would apply to Uber, just to make clear, um, is it really would apply like on comments on the drivers or comments section on something like that. I think there was another conversation related to this sort of boundaries question around what what happens when the editorial discretion of the content moderation is done by a machine. And you saw this in a couple of cases, uh, including an exchange uh, with Justice Thomas and NetChoices Council asking specifically, is there a distinction between action or editing that takes place as a result of an algorithm as opposed to a, a, a human being? Is there any distinction between um, action or uh, editing that takes place as a result of an algorithm as opposed to uh, an individual? I don't think so, Your Honor. These algorithms don't spring from the ether. They are essentially computer programs designed by humans to try to do some of this editorial function. Is in well, but what do you do with, say, deep learning algorithm, which teaches itself and, and has very little human intervention? You, you still had to have somebody who kind of created the universe that that algorithm is going to look so at. So who's speaking then, the algorithm or the person? I think, you know, the question in these cases would be the Facebook is speaking, that YouTube is speaking, because they're the ones that are using these devices to run their editorial discretion across these massive volumes. What's interesting is if you contrast that with their framing and arguments and Gonzalez and Tamina, where they really tried to frame their content algorithms in particular as neutral processes that weren't sort of editorial discretion, but these sort of neutral mechanisms stating at one point they make no distinguishment between rice pilaf and terrorism content. That was made a lot of sense in the case of Tamna because they were uh, pushing back on claims that they were endorsing terrorist content and either in their recommendation actions or their uh, lack of action to take down content. But here it works against them because they're arguing the exact opposite, that, that these curation activities are, are editorial discretion and protected by the First Amendment. And this conversation in particular has a lot of relevance beyond this case because there's a whole discussion around liability and algorithms. There's a discussion about AI and large language models and who's liable for the outputs, whether it's the company or in some cases, some have argued that the companies either are protected by Section 230 or we should expand 230 to shield the platforms because the LLMs are simply reflecting other people's speech and not necessarily the speech of the company or the conduct of the company. The court may view these laws differently. Of course, there are different laws. They've got different provisions. Are there other aspects of these laws that seem to get different reception by the justices? And could that matter in terms of how the decision ultimately plays out? I think that there's a potential for them to view them very or to treat them differently and have different outcomes. So one of the ironies of the Florida law is that because it is written in a way that could cover a lot more platforms, just the nature of how it's written, it actually makes it potentially more likely that the court would reject NetChoice's facial challenge. Because again, the facial challenge is based on invalidating the whole law and saying that it cannot apply in any context. But given, if you look back at the conversation, the justices seemed more receptive to the idea that certain aspects of the Florida law could apply to maybe not the social media companies, but other technology platforms. And so there is a, a potential 
that they could say, look at the Florida law and say, well, we're not really sure that certain aspects of this are not unconstitutional or are constitutional in, the, in their application, maybe not for social media platforms, but for these other technological platforms. The difference is the Texas case, and um, they're sort of on the hook for this, I guess, because they said it in front of the Supreme Court, is that it's much more clearly targeted at sort of the big three social media platforms or the largest social media platforms. I would assume then that if the court finds that the Texas law is, you know, given that it's, it's unconstitutional, that most of the provisions are unconstitutional, that it would be easier for them to agree with the facial challenge in the case of Texas, but maybe not in the case of Florida. I suppose what's next? What are the possible outcomes here? We've got the term goes through June. We should have some kind of decision. I guess the court could rule outright on both the Florida and the Texas law, or they could perhaps go in different directions on on each, or perhaps kick it back down to lower courts to dig into some more of the detail here that seem not to satisfy them. What do you think is going to happen? One of the reasons that the laws could be kicked down to a lower court is because the justices were really questioning if it's their role to determine, you know, what social media platforms would be covered based on the ways that the statutes were written. Justice Alito. Where in the record would should I look to find a list of all of the platforms that are covered by the Florida statute? Well, well, Your Honor, I'm afraid that doesn't appear in the, in the record because I think the, the, the platforms were fairly cagey about which of their members they thought the statute applied to. The, the record only contains three platform-specific declarations, Etsy, uh, uh, Facebook, and YouTube. So uh, that, that's part of the problem in this case is that we, we, we don't have a sense of – the record has not been fully developed to, to answer that. And basically both counsels kind of – the excuse that they'd given – was that because the preliminary injunction was, you know, issued so quickly and they had to litigate at breakneck speed, they never had a chance to answer these questions. So we're kind of litigating in the dark here. And this was litigated on a preliminary injunction at breakneck speed without the, the state having a chance to take discovery. And that's part of the reasons why some of these questions are difficult to answer. Texas actually welcomed the idea, you know, if you if we want to be kicked down to a lower court, decide which social media platforms would be covered and then bring it back up to the Supreme Court again to to rule on these and similar issues they, they said, you know, we're happy to do that. And I'll just add that I think the other question for the justices is whether they keep in place the preliminary injunctions uh, when they kick them back down. If they kick them back down, they could maybe make distinctions between the two laws on that practical purpose. Um, but certainly that would be hugely impactful because if in the process of you know, kicking them back down, they go into effect. That creates a tremendous amount of un- uncertainty for um, being the social media companies. And I uh, think even in the case of the in the Florida law, I think lots of technological platforms and companies. Well, it was an enormous effort to review all those amicus briefs uh, and to provide analysis both before and after this argument. Shout out to Hajar Galani, who's a graduate student at Medill, who was on the ground for us at the Supreme Court last week. And I'll also say thanks to our Georgetown fellows, Maria Fernanda Chenduvi, Divya Gull, Mateo Garcia Silva, for all of their help in looking at dozens and dozens of amicus briefs. And Gabby and Ben, I thank you both very much for doing that. Thank you. Thank you so much.
That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.